Welcome to Healthcare Happenings, a One Digital Employer Advisory Podcast. It's no secret that healthcare is complicated, and to prepare for the road ahead, business leaders need transparency and access to information in order to develop the best health benefit strategy. Our team of compliance leaders are here to shed light on the latest developments on the Hill and share their collective vision for ways to improve the healthcare experience. Welcome back, everybody. Um, We're going to talk today about the Supreme Court's decision on the ACA. Now, this is not the first go around for us. Um, This is the third time, I guess, third time. I don't know how many, how you're going to count all these times that they're going to, they're going to challenge the ACA in in one way, shape or form. But um, it is, um, it is significant. The first time that, you know, when we looked at it, it was really before ACA, the Affordable Care Act, really um, started all of its enforcement, which, you know, the enforcement for individuals, the enforcement for employers, all that started really in 2014. Um, and so leading up to that, there was the suit that the Supreme Court heard in 2012, which really said, hey, Congress can't tell us to buy health insurance, right? That was sort of the the premise. And so the Supreme Court came back um, and argued, you know, and really looked at whether Congress had that, the right to do that. And, and basically, the fact that they weren't penalizing people for not buying something, but they were, in fact, assessing a tax because they were using the existing tax mechanism to collect share payments if you didn't have health insurance. Um Congress has the right to tax. And so as as a result, the Supreme Court came back and said the individual mandate's fine. Well, fast forward four more years, or no, I can't, now I can't even math. Let's try five more years into 2017. And with the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we have uh, the provision done through a budget reconciliation process where whereby the actual tax being assessed for not having individual coverage went to zero. So there was no penalty or tax assessment if you didn't have individual health coverage. So on the heels of that, the there were um, a number of states attorneys general that got together and said, hey, wait, if, if there's no money involved, then you can't call it a tax. So on that basis, we think the individual mandate is unconstitutional. And so we're going to challenge it again, because not only do we think it's unconstitutional, but we think it's so closely tied to other pieces of the law that the association shouldn't exist. So that's basically what they've been deciding over the past year or two through the lower courts and um, and through um, appeals. And so that brings us to the final stage of kind of deciding this, which is the Supreme Court's decision this 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 month, earlier this month, a couple of weeks ago. So I wonder if we can kind of go through what was decided here. Um, 
turn it over to the team here to start talking about. So what do we find out Um, as they were deciding? We didn't really find much. I mean, they threw it out kind of on a technicality. I think that's what a lot of people are kind of expecting. Essentially, what the majority decision came back with was that the plaintiffs that brought suit essentially didn't have standing. Um, And it kind of goes to just like a judicial... you know, a litigation kind of special issue to be like, these aren't the right parties to bring suit, essentially saying you guys weren't harmed or the harm that you did have wasn't fairly traceable to the defendant here in the United States. So therefore you can't bring this suit and we're not going to hear essentially the merits of the case. So let me ask, are, are you all surprised though that somebody would take a case this far either naively claiming that they, uh, were harmed or they didn't do a better job of indicating what the harm was. It just surprises me that someone would take a case that far without one of those two uh, things being true. Is it surprising that uh, litigants miscalculate how justices or judges would interpret a set of facts? It happens all the time where individuals think they have a case that seems logical and and uh, and is on solid footing. But when they get before the court, the court viewing it through their lens, views it in a completely different manner. And you end up getting a surprise, uh, a, a surprise ruling. The, the challenge, the challenge here. Um, if you were to take the logic that's used by the majority in, sh- in trying to what the majority opinion was really trying to do is trying to ascertain what exactly is the harm is that at least on a few different fronts, the harm was hazy and not specifically quantifiable. Um, I, 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 you know, somebody, an individual arguing that uh, the individual mandate harms me when there's no tax penalty associated with it without making substantive arguments as to what harm that removal of the tax penalty caused led the court to conclude that the only harm we're talking about is the tax penalty, if that makes sense. Where that that wouldn't be the argument you should make with this type of case. So if we were to think about who could make a compelling argument that they were harmed as a zeroing out of the individual mandate, it's any party that's paying claims. when the Affordable Care Act passed, the major consideration that was offered to payers of all stripes, not just private insurance carriers, but this would include employers, this would include uh, governmental programs, is look, we're about to eliminate all different, all types of underwriting components that have historically existed in health insurance. We're eliminating things like rescission of coverage, uh, except in cases of outright fraud, we're expanding essential health benefits, we're eliminating annual and lifetime limits. The only way that we can even have a prayer of making this work and be financially stable is if we have as many individuals in the risk pool as humanly possible uh, and 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 or in the alternative we're collecting payments from those who decide to sit out and sit on the side and not buy insurance and when the affordable care act was being passed they used massachusetts as the as the test study and economists in massachusetts said look that's the that's the number one thing you got to have is you got to have a negative incentive driving people to the risk pool so so the affordable care act passes with that incentive that incentive is zeroed out I could envision an insurance carrier going and filing a suit and saying, look, it's not the, the harm isn't just the penalty itself. 
It's not the fact that people that, that we're not collecting revenue from an individual mandate penalty. The harm that suffered is as a result of zeroing out that penalty, we, the insurance carrier, or we, the employer who sponsors an employer-sponsored health plan, are responsible for funding all of these new benefits that are mandated under the law. We have very limited underwriting capabilities. We, we, we're not in a position where we can deny coverage really to anyone for any reason. Um, we've lost that protection that was included in the law. Look at how our costs have increased because of the rate of adverse selection and the general health of the of the risk pool that we have. That would be an interesting argument to hear. I that love that. Yeah. yeah. Unintentionally or intentionally, you've created an adverse selection event that has cost everybody money. Yeah. So, Ron, I, lo- I, I like that thought. And Scott, going back to what you said, um, I love this. So if we go back just really um, a little bit for um, the folks that are listening, because um, these are concepts that we all talk about a lot, but go back a little bit and talk about what is the purpose of insurance? Like insurance was it's, it's a gamble. Yes, I am betting I'm going to be really sick and I can't afford to pay for it. The insurance company is betting that you're not. (laughs) So, you know, you have this, this risk, right? And what is that risk worth to both the purchaser as well as to um, the people providing that coverage, the the carriers that you're talking about, Scott. So I, I love that whole perspective of, okay, basically in the ACA, they came to the carriers and said, we're changing how the game works. Right. Everybody, you you have to charge everybody the same thing. You can't look and say who's going to use more claim dollars and charge them more than somebody who will never have a claim at all. Right. And so that significantly changed the individual marketplace because up until that point, they could do that and they could say, you know what, you're too risky for us. We are not taking that gamble. And then those people that was part of the issue couldn't find coverage or didn't have any financial mechanism to help them. And they were probably the people who would be most likely to have the the big claims. And so that's what they were sort of solving for. And so when you look at that and you're evening out this whole gamble piece, the carriers, didn't they, Scott, basically say, look, I'm not playing within that unless you guarantee, just like you said, then everyone has to be in. It can't just be some people, like just all the sick people are in, right? It has to be just everybody. Otherwise, this doesn't make any sense. Well, even going through the opinion again and, and, and taking a look at what the majority's position was on the states that were included in the lawsuit and, and their argument was the individual mandate caused them to incur costs yep. um, that, that were beyond that, that were onerous to them. The injury that they that they suffered was as a result of the mandate, we incurred greater costs. But again, the articulation of that cost it, in my humble opinion, is imprecise, right? It's not, it's not the, the, because if you zero out the penalty, you're not driving more people to buy the product. To me, the harm is actually the opposite, which is the harm is you zeroed out the penalty. Now people aren't buying the product and paying in leading up to their utilization. And now we've created this system where, where we have to cover all this stuff, but there's no, we don't have any type of stick to collect any form of revenue from individuals who are like, I feel good this year, 
uh, I'm going to wait till I feel bad. And then I'm going to jump in and start paying into the pot. So it's, if you're going to, if you're going to take away the ability to underwrite an insurance to a robust nature without that stick, that, that that to me seems like the fertile ground for proving harm. Uh, So do you Uh, think, yeah. Yeah. So do you think like if they had stepped forward and said, look, when the zeroing happened, here's how many people dropped out of the marketplace and then tried through special enrollment periods to jump back in when they had claims or, you know, and not pay anything in between. Um, or um, now they're without coverage, right? And the states are picking that up through, you know, um, the free care that they're providing or the fact that they, you know, the hospital, even the hospitals are providers, right? They're, because their they're, um, subsidization payments got significantly cut for, you know, because they, you know, by law, they have to treat everybody who comes in the door, even if they can't pay for it, right? And they have to stabilize them, whatever. But those payments got significantly cut with ACA because the thought was everyone's going to have coverage, right? So they won't need that, right? And and the mechanisms would be in place. But if all those people fall out of the marketplace, I don't know. Does that not be harm there too? Yeah, I think two things happened with that and that. One is, I think the idea that they wanted everybody insured was transcended by the idea that they wanted everybody to have financial security. And mm-hmm. and so there, there's all kinds of mixed, you know, theories and strategies that that went into put together this uh, healthcare plan and they don't merge into the common equities of the business of insurance. They just don't. <laughs> that's the, that's the ultimate point, which is that, which is that we've essentially said you, it's no longer the business of insurance because of the, of the, of the limitations on how you can assess risk right. um, in some of the markets, not all the markets, but in some of the markets, there's limitations on how we assess risk. And now that, now that stick is, is removed, but, but, to, to go beyond this, what I think we, you know, we were having a little bit of a discussion before we hit record here, and and I think that I, I, Sam, Ron, and that you you guys share this perspective where I was at least interested to hear what they had to say about severability. Um, And, and I had, I was really interested in hearing, does the court hold the opinion that even if the plaintiffs had had achieved standing, right. And they were, they were put in a position of having to hear the case on its merits and hear the arguments and rule on uh, and, and and rule beyond uh, the procedural objections or rule beyond the the, the point in, in the civil procedure where the case was sitting right now, uh, which is establishing standing, would they have put a bed to this challenge to the Affordable Care Act by saying that the law is severable? Or would they have taken the position that, look, there's no severability clause within the within the Affordable Care Act. This is on this provision is now unconstitutional. Therefore, the entire law is unconstitutional. It almost would be helpful to just get that get to a point where we have that decision and know one way or another. Are, are we playing this game or are we not playing this game anymore? You know, so I was a little bummed that we didn't get there because I think it's highly likely they would have found severability. Just looking at the justices who participated yeah. in the majority, I think it's highly likely they would have found that. But we don't have that now. So that means the door is still 
open. Yeah, I know. That's so great. It's like, it's like uh, you know, your package is wrapped under the tree and not being able to open them, you know? Any thoughts, Sam, on the... Uh, on that, on any of those components from your perspective? Um, I think, yeah, you know, just, it's interesting, you know, just, as you know, Scott said, you know, it's been thrown out a procedural type of technicality. So, you know, a different party could bring suit, but really what changed here, because I, as you mentioned, Annette, it's been heard before the Supreme Court two other times, is that that zeroing out the penalty. So that's where new plaintiffs are coming in is because that's the change in the law. So that's really where they're going to have to come in and try to prove some type of standing or some injury because, you know, the rest of the ACA has already been litigated. It's kind of that thing of double jeopardy you know um so it would be interesting um i know alito's dissent is pretty lengthy um and and in there he did find that they did have standing and that i believe the whole aca was unconstitutional i think he Mm -hmm. even said it was not severable yeah he did so i mean that dissenting opinion was just the two of them him and and neil gorsuch and they um, they actually sided um, fairly closely with um, the lower court, which is what brought this all the way to the Supreme Court in the first place. Was that it was uh, inseparable? You know, they couldn't you couldn't strip out this provision without negating the whole thing. So, and yeah, he agreed. So it's interesting. Yeah, to your point, Scott. But I think okay. So is it? So what happens next? Nothing with this, I wouldn't think, unless there's some other. Hard that come forward from other parties like the carrier world, I think, Scott, like you're saying, or some of the other parties that have, uh, you know, if they can prove some sort of harm. The other thing might be, um, do you suppose it would be if they start making additional modifications to the ACA where that may open the door to uh, another look? Well, with, without opening up a huge can of worms, which I'm known for, it's like, uh, it, 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 hey, one last thing. Let's stay on for another 20 minutes. Um, and, and I know I know I drive Annette, Sam, and Ron crazy when I do that. But, uh, but, but, there's, but there, is a, there is an interesting phenomenon that I do think supports a constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act that has to do with our employers that are subject to the employer shared responsibility provisions. And that's the phenomenon where one employer's offer of coverage can protect another employer from employer shared responsibility excise tax penalties. Where So if I offer affordable minimum value coverage and I'm subject to the employer shared responsibility provisions, um, my employee who may be married to a spouse who works for another company uh, that's subject to the employer shared responsibility provisions, the employer mandate. Let's say my company's offering me minimum value affordable coverage. My wife works for uh, another company that's subject to the mandate and they're not offering her minimum value affordable coverage. They decide we're just going to pay penalties because of the family glitch in the affordable care act. My wife can't go get a subsidy on healthcare.gov or the exchange 
because of my employer's offer of coverage to me. Right. Therefore, my wife can't trigger a penalty for her employer. And my employer has effectively protected her employer from penalty liability. And that happens. I mean, that that protection happens yeah. every day where, where one company is doing the hard work, coming into compliance, doing the right thing. And another company says, we're just going to pay penalties. And the one uh, the one offer of coverage has has effectively um, protected the employer, the other employer from an offer uh, from from penalty liability. Why is that a constitutional challenge? I've never heard of a situation where one employer's compliance with a tax provision protects another completely unrelated employer from exposure to that tax. I'd be interested in somebody filing that lawsuit and seeing what happens. <laughs> Any takers out there? <laughs> yeah. don't, yeah. don't say we told you something. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, any uh, any parting thoughts on um, on this particular case? Anything um, that we want to leave our listeners with? I think one of the things is that, look, you know what, the system works like the system works, but that people have the opportunity to challenge things doesn't always go the way some people want it to go. Um, but there are a whole bunch of independent people with independent thoughts kind of listening and that that laws and regulations, there are some basic um, things that are, you know, universal, but like we saw it, people can, even our justices can have a different take on the exact same laws that it, that they're not so rigid that, um, that nuances can't be taken into consideration. And, and while sometimes that plays out in your favor and sometimes it doesn't, at the end of the day, the system is working like it's supposed to work and that people have uh, the, uh, the ability to challenge things and to, to bring those thoughts. And um, that's a good place to be. With that, I think we'll close today's session and we'll see you next time. I think we're going to continue our, um, we do have our today's healthcare series that we're doing, just talking about how, why the costs are the costs and how healthcare is going to be delivered in the future. So catch that uh, in our, some of our past episodes. And uh, we'll be talking about some of the provisions coming forward for employers, Bacori fees, 5500s, a number of other, other things. So we'll talk to you next time. And thank you all for tuning in. Staying on top of compliance today can be the source of great concern and frustration. Our dedicated team of attorneys and experts look around the corner on your behalf and deliver the tools, education, and resources needed to help you plan for the future and protect your employees and business every day. You can access additional resources, employer advisory sessions, and podcasts on our website, onedigital.com. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time.